Welcome to episode three of the Precision Microcast with your hosts, Josh Hacko and Adam Demuth. In this episode, we talk about what's possibly one of the first five-axis high-speed machining centers. Really interesting stuff. We also talk about our precision problems. We both have problems with precise boards, and we talk about methods to make them and gauge them. Grab some headphones and a coffee and stay tuned for episode three of the Precision Microcast. Okay, so for today's machine tool segment, we're going to talk about a very obscure machine. Uh, I'm just going to list off some of the facts and see if you guys could put it together. You can have it equipped with either a 40 or 80,000 RPM hydrostatic spindle. It uh, full five axis portal frame. Siemens control. You can go up to 84 tools in the magazine. Um, this machine was developed 20 years ago. And that's kind of what caught my eye. I think this thing was a little ahead of its time. Um, back in the early aughts, high-speed machining like this wasn't quite as popular as it is now, especially in 5-axis. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is the Moore Tool FSP300X. So the people that brought us the infamous jig grinders at one point tried to get into the high-speed 5-axis arena, and this was their offering. Why infamous? What's What makes the jig grinders infamous? Uh, well, when you talk about jig grinders, it's only ever more tool, when in reality, there's a lot of people who build them. I see. And anything in the tool and die industry, um, they're almost like a legend anymore, because most tool and die shops, it just sits in the corner like a, a, a ghost almost, mm-hmm. and you know nobody in the shop remembers how to run it anymore, and uh, everything's moved off of them. They're there are some things that still absolutely have to be done on a jig grinder, but for the most part, die designers have started constructing dies and CADs so that everything can be wire EDM'd. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a big part of Moore's relevance to U.S. manufacturing was kind of uh, phased out in when it comes to die design. And, s- um, and so this machine, the FSP300X, was not... Yes. From what I understand, not a successor to the G-Grinder, right? No. It Apparently, they did have grinding cycles on the Siemens control, but in my opinion, it's not really a grinder. It's kind of like uh, a rotors where it's a mill, but it can do some grinding. And um, it, it, it doesn't say grinder first when I look at the build materials and the construction. So when I looked at this, when you sent this through to me, uh, the one thing that stood out to me was how little information there was out on this machine. I think there's a couple of catalogs and some uh, industry uh, articles that machine tool makers sort of push out when they try to release a machine. But what could you glean from it? Well, they, they almost specifically build it for impellers. Um, from what I can gather. And that's almost like a cliche trade show demo at this point is cutting an impeller on a five axis. You almost groan when you see it. Mm. But um, back in early 2000s, a lot of impellers were 
near net cast or you know not as precise and you couldn't run them as fast due to lack of balance and from what i gather this one was built for impellers and the only uh any documentation i could find of them being used outside of more were for cutting impellers for the military so i think the way it went was that the military more or less tenderized this not tenderized like meat but um tenderized as in they set out a tender for these impellers and Mm -hmm. more came with a solution saying that we can build this machine to do these impellers uh and then the company called taps t-a-p-s bought this machine and uh won the tender and started making these impellers that's the way i gather which is a really interesting um sort of way to develop a machine. I think a lot of machine tool builders nowadays, they develop a machine with a broad set of use cases and they say, well, our machine will be able to do impellers, but it will also be able to do uh, medical parts or especially with these kind of high RPM, high-speed machining machines, they, they tend to focus on, on, on a, it's like dental, medical, watchmaking, precision mechanics. Uh, you've got some complica- complicated five-axis parts and... Tool and die is always at the bottom of the list. It's almost always their smallest segment Sorry, of Adam. buyers for those types of machines. Yeah. It's true, though. <laughs> like when you talk to guys at the trade show, the, uh, tool and die is a very hard market to sell stuff to. That's right. So I think they went the other way. They had a specific product in mind and developed the machine around that. And these brochures almost look like... And I, last thing I want to do is throw shade at more, but... It almost looks like Moore was clutching at straws in trying to market their machine to a broad set of industry segments after the fact. Yeah, I think they just realized that they had a viable design at some point and wanted to start selling it. Um, but uh, I, I think why you've never heard of this was failure in marketing. So at 2005 is when a lot of the marketing push seemed to have happened. And that's... That was like the early area for videos on the internet. Mm. Um, and there's not a single video I could find of this thing running. So that's kind of odd. Um, and you know, like you said, I, I don't think they knew how to sell it or who to sell it to other than impellers. Mm. The one thing that stands out for me on that sort of train of thought is the mixed bag of options that come that come on these on these yeah you you could uh, equip the spindle in a lot of different configurations not just in terms of speed but in the upper echelons of speed you had a lot of options air high frequency electric or uh, hydrostatic which is interesting um that you had that many types of options um i found that odd but uh absolutely and the other thing that came into mind was that you could get this machine in a four or a five axis configuration, which um, I guess when you have this very interesting uh, kinematic layout, it's a horizontal machine with apparently what is <laughs> called a portal design. Uh, the Usually when you've got these sort of weird and wacky kinematic structures, you've based them around one specific um axis layout and axis number so it's it's just okay one example might be the kern micro 
it's primarily designed as a five-axis machine. You, the three-axis mm-hmm. variant exists, but seeing a four-axis micro would be hilarious to me. I think it would kind of not make sense in the ethos and the design philosophy behind the machine. And it seems that Moore was just saying, well, okay, we'll make the machine however you want it. We've got a good base. We've got a good um, understanding of what this high-speed machining should look like. Uh, it, it almost... It almost seems it almost seems that if they just made one machine with one set of um, options, it it might have sold a little bit better because they could have marketed just one machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's fair. Um, something that jumps out to me is it it kind of has that bolted together look you see with a lot of esoteric machines where. Hmm. Oh, we bought this spindle, this axis drive, and just kind of, it's all bolted together and then, you know, kind of a squarish box of sheet metal. Didn't have quite that polish that you see on a lot of machine tools. Um, But as far as like axis layout, to give the listeners kind of an idea, this is essentially a horizontal machining center without the pallet changer. Hmm. And uh, then on top of what would be the B-axis sits a, what would that be, a C-axis? Yes. Yeah. And I I don't know what the push to go horizontal was, chip evacuation perhaps, but uh, uh, the type of work it was doing, I don't think it needed the, the strength one usually gains with a horizontal layout, but uh, um, certainly not light on floor space for... Mm how much uh, travel it has. I've seen a lot better economy of space in five-axis designs that were vertical. But um, I I would be curious to see the frame. Um, More, I think, would have had a lot of tribal knowledge in Mm. machine frame building. Uh, They pretty much laid the groundwork for a lot of high-accuracy machine frames. But one thing that surprised me is they had, for a long time, used the frame of their large format jig grinder, the G48, mm-hmm. for all kinds of stuff. Um, it was just truly one of the more accurate frames anybody's ever built. And so if I was trying to build a high-accuracy 5-axis machine, I might have started there. Mm. It's almost a shame it didn't work out for them, because I would love to see more be the american equivalent of kern at this point in time yeah don't tell marv maybe they are well no <laughs> um despite all this mixed bag of of options one i am kind of carnally almost drawn to this machine because the stats that you see in like the technical uh statistics that you see or the, the specification that you see they represent what a lot of machine tool builders are doing now, except 20 years ago. So this, as you mentioned oh, yeah. at the start, this really was before its time. 30 meters a minute rapids uh, right now sounds quite quite normal, but 20 years ago, I'm sure that wasn't the case. 30,000 RPM spindle as kind of like the lowest spec spindle. Um, and the accuracy specs on top of that, the says four four micron on the whole uh the positioning uncertainty on the whole axis travel 
these sort of specifications are nothing to laugh at even now, let alone 20 years ago. There's a lot of beckoning to automation and larger magazine size. So I think even back then they kind of knew what the industry was going towards with the kind of machines capable of doing high mix, low volume. And they, they had built a solution for it that, uh, nobody needed it though. (laughs) If, uh, anybody has a video of this thing running, I would be very curious to see it. Um, from what I understand, Moore's contract machining division has a few, uh, but that's that's the only company I've found that lists still having them. The company we mentioned earlier, Taps, um, there's no mention of them on their website, and I can't imagine they would still have. This would look like a very progressive company. They would still have them after all this time, mm. and so that begs the question. Uh, <laughs> Are these just, you know, sitting in a scrapyard? Oh, hopefully not. At least they could have probably been repurposed considering the, the bill of materials on, on this machine. One last thing that I think that popped out to me was an oil hydrostatic spindle for 80,000 RPM. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, usually they're, they're air or high-frequency electric at that point. Um Hydrostatic to me implies you need big loads, and um, so yeah, I found that interesting. So either that's a typo in their product catalog, which I, I hope it's not, but I've I, I'm really curious to find out about that. So if anyone has any knowledge of an eighty thousand RPM hydrostatic spindle, please let me know because I'd be fascinated to see how that actually works. Well, the, the other interesting fact about that spindle is more designed and built it. Wow. So they built a lot of their high RPM jig grinder spindles, but those were all air. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that interesting as well because their modern jig grinders uh, are air and electric. And so I, I, I haven't seen a hydrostatic spindle from them, anything other than in this brochure. So this week on our Precision Problems segment, we'll be talking about holes, all sorts of holes, small holes, big holes, shallow holes, and how to accurately gauge and measure them. And I know for my parts, I've got a lot of problem holes, and I'd love to hear about your parts, Adam. Have you ever heard of a tube dowel? No. What's a tube dowel? Um, so tube dowels are very, very common on a lot of uh, automation equipment like a Festool air cylinder or air gripper it will have these two relatively short dowels that are hollow and what that allows the designer to do is within the same center line he could have his dowel placed and through the center of that dowel his fastener ah I see okay and so talking to a few designers I know that like employing them, they like them because they could just have in their hole tables or hole wizard a profile for like an M5 screw and corresponding hole dowel. And all they have to do is position it once. And then within their two plates, they have their fastener, their through hole, their socket head counterbore, and their locating pin. Mm-hmm. And so from a design standpoint, they're, they're, they're quick to use. Um, I don't feel like they're great for high precision applications, and that's where 
my problem came in. But if you're just placing a cylinder and you want to be able to drop it into your assembly relatively quickly within, you know, 25 microns and it fits mm-hmm. well, there's not any wiggle, they work great. Because one of the things a tube dowel also does is it's so thin-walled that any irregularities in your corresponding dowel hole, it can kind of conform to. So let's say if you're on an older boxway machine, if you have some quadrant marks, that's not going to be a big deal. If Mm. it's tight, it'll still press in. So my problem this week is I had to locate together a series of plates with 9mm tube dowels, and they went into each plate 2 millimeters, and the dowel was 3.5 millimeters long, so it had a little float axially. Um, uh, the problem was when you only have 2 millimeters of hole and it's 9 millimeters wide, it's very, very difficult mm. to get a precision feel. And being in hardened material, I was hard cutting the bores, I didn't feel like... I had, without any doubt, no wall taper. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever gauged, pinned a hole that small, but uh, you don't really have any sense of feel. Like, as soon as you get past the chamfer, it either is stiff or falls in, and you don't know where within the, the range of that gauge pin, like if it's loose for it. Um, because at the bottom, of course, is your cutter radius. So you have very, very little actual guiding land on this dowel hole, which is one of my complaints with the design of tube dowels, is I think they make a lot of sense from a design perspective and getting a locator and fastener onto a relatively small package. But from a perspective of guys making stuff, I don't like them because it limits your hole-making options. Mm -hmm. You can't ream a tube dowel hole. And uh, pretty much your only option is to interpolate it. So I was struggling with gauge pens, and I'd use Deltronics, which is a a 2.5 micron increment pen, which might sound funny to you, but they're an American company, so they move in 10th increments. Uh, They just label the metric sets as such, rather than trying to rearrange their whole operation. So I was using those to gauge... Uh, but then it occurred to me I have quite a few Mitutoyo digital tri mics, and so I was really excited because I invested a lot in these years ago, and I don't really get to get them out that often. And uh, so I get it out only to discover that there's a cap screw on the bottom of the mm. tri mic, which kind of holds it all together, and that prevented the probe tips from getting into the two millimeter deep counterbore. Mm. So. <laughs> I think had uh, had it fit, that would have been a pretty good way to do it. Um, but yeah, wasn't really happy overall uh, with how those measured out. I, I didn't have a ton of confidence in them. But at the end of the day, the dowel fit and the two assemblies or two pieces assembled and were located accurately to one another. So how did you end up measuring them? Was that with the shallow ball gauge that I see every now and then on your Instagram stories? Uh, no, I, I used uh, the Deltronics pens, but it was just like very uh, hit or miss. You couldn't uh-huh. tell if it was tight on the land or if you'd pushed it too far in and you were starting to get into the tool's radius, corner yeah. radius. 
and that's where I had an issue. Um, so I, I basically went, you know, in these two and a half micron increments until I just was a hundred percent certain that was the actual size of the biggest pin I could get in. And I wasn't fighting the, the tool land or like a sharp edge from the chamfer. How much is there to be said about using the final assembly? I know we're not all fortunate enough to, to be in the position to measure like this, but the final assembly to gauge the fit. For example, if you had the mating part that uh, mm-hmm. presented itself to those um, uh, shallow shallow bores, if you just place the mating part in and gauge the fit just in a, um, I guess, 100% QC sort of style where you just try every single part would that be a solution as well that's how i double checked my numbers Mm -hmm. i I went ahead and bought the corresponding tube dowel um these were made by shunk i believe and checked it that way Mm -hmm. and of course like the dowel is trilobular and misshapen and so it, it it didn't necessarily yield what i felt was a good fit but at the end of the day, I kind of realized as long as these two go together and it's located accurately, <laughs> I think the buyer is going to be happy. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to give them something to complain about. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty peculiar, but I know that the fit's ultimately what matters, but you still have to kind of stick to the print. That's right. I have one sort of experience with tube dowels. Not that I knew what they were until this podcast sort of started and happened. Um, I think Festool and Shunk might call them a centering ring. Centering ring? Okay. But uh, I've seen them used in mold construction, and in molds they're called tube dowels. I designed one fixture where I didn't have very much space to put any dowel pins, and the part didn't allow for any internal clamping or anything like that. So I had these two 1.5 millimeter holes that I put a 1.5 millimeter dowel pin to locate on and then drilled and tapped M1 uh, threads into the actual dowel itself. So it's the, maybe the inverse of, of what a tube dowel is. So if you can imagine a dowel pin with a thread through it and then mm-hmm. I, you put the part on top and some M1 screws to hold the part down. And I found that uh, I was I was using this method to fixture brass um, brass parts, and as soon as I transitioned to Damascus parts, uh, the 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 location of the two dowel the 1.5 millimeter dowel bores started to shift a lot more. Drilling Damascus is a little bit tricky, so um, those bores started moving in X and Y. And I found that the parts still fit on the exact same fixture, even though they measured at times 20 or 25 microns out. And you quickly realize that there's so much compliance, especially at such a small diameter, there's so much compliance in that uh, dowel pin that you could more or less force it on and have it fit perfectly. I, uh, I see that occasionally, um, which dowels aren't, that accurate of mm. a locating device i mean they're a convenient one um but yeah they're not the end all be all of accuracy when it comes to getting two parts sitting on top of one another very accurate together absolutely i fell down that trap quite a few times in making my fixtures and assuming 
that the dowels would be perfect. But as soon as you start measuring, I mean, that's the final final word, right? And uh, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things to be said for dowels, but when it gets to high precision stuff, you have to find other solutions and you have to find other methods of um, tramming in parts or probing parts or uh, locating in an efficient but accurate manner where I feel like a dowel is just efficient. Yeah, more often than not. Now, in like some of the die applications, we were able to hold very good positioning, yes. but these were wire cut dowel holes into bases where the dowel hole was then jig ground. Uh, so just high levels of accuracy on both mating parts. Uh, and on top of that, these weren't off-the-shelf McMaster car dowels. These were um, ultra-precision-grade dowels. Yes. And so with all that being said, yeah, it was really accurate. Um, but you had to be very careful in how you could assemble these. Mm-hmm. Um, if you got the dowel cocked, it was going to cause problems. And um, So I always found them frustrating. But uh, like you said, it's kind of the most convenient option more often than not. For those who haven't followed on some of my Instagram stories, Adam designed a small stamping die uh, or press tool about a year ago, actually. Um, and I'm, I'd say I'd like to say I'm just past the halfway mark in in building it myself, and that was my first true experience with uh, super accurate, let's say, dowel holes. And um, as you said, I wire cut the both sides because I was fortunate enough that they were both through holes so the dowel itself presses in on one side but slides but just barely on the other side and you're absolutely right if you have the the two mating parts off by probably less than a degree probably a lot less than a degree actually uh, you just simply won't be able to put them on and suddenly the efficiency of dowel holes or dowel pins as location um, methods go, goes through the roof. So it's a big trade-off, you know. I don't think there are very many solutions that are both efficient and accurate. We, in a lot of the automation stuff, started using this technique since everything we were doing was from nominal ground plate. Like all of our uh, plate was 20 millimeters minus 10 microns plus nothing. Um so what you do is if you needed to locate a block onto the edge of that plate accurately, you would cut a notch, the width of it, into it. And essentially you have these two U-shapes that interlock. And I see that a lot in most of the stuff I do. And uh, it's not only is it quite accurate, it's uh, quite stiff, but also it's pretty simple to make. These are just... Uh, straight through U-channels, so you could surface grind everything in. You don't have to, post-heat treat, come up with some kind of hole finishing solution. So they the hole doesn't need jig grinding or wire EDM after heat treat. So it saves a lot of time in that regard. So dowel holes, when you don't have the luxury of reaming, become very expensive when you're dealing with heat-treated components. Anyways, that's enough about dowels. <laughs> One thing, actually, uh, I, I do like a diamond pins. Uh, I find that they're quite useful in uh, in the efficiency side, and often than not, they can be as accurate, if not more accurate. I'm, I haven't done any extensive testing, but I do like the way they feel. I've never really 
seeing them used outside of what I'd consider like fast and dirty locating, just kind of like fixture plates on mills. I've never seen them used in a high precision application. Not to say they can't, but I just don't have any experience there. Yeah, so your precision problem. Yes, my precision problem. Also, uh, talking about holes, um, this precision problem has been going on for a long time. I think oh, for the last two years, I'd say, and I don't know if it's absolutely solved. I think I'm getting close, but long story short, uh, in my production parts, I've got anywhere between um, 10 and 50 holes per part, all under on average, all under 1.5 millimeters in diameter and the smallest holes being about 0.6, 0.7 millimeters in diameter and about, in most cases, about two millimeters deep. So maybe the other sort of um, format to the shallow holes or shallow bores that we were talking about on your parts. But my, the, the precision problem comes in the fact that some of these holes have to be held within plus or minus three micron for press fits uh, with what we call jewels and they're just ruby plain bearings that especially in timascus and other hard materials crack if the hole is too tight and simply pass yeah. through if they're too loose so if you can imagine trying to press in a ceramic bearing or something you know very brittle into a hard material, the 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 tolerance, the, the clearances have to be bang on. You, you don't have very much room for error. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's sort of the driving force behind the problem. But the actual problem itself is how do you gauge these holes in a production setting, but also in a in a sort of first article adjustment setting. Some of these holes are interpolated with end mills, um, and it's. It's, it gets very, very tricky very, very quickly because your initial thought is, well, okay, let's just chuck a gauge pin in and see if it, if it fits. Well, I didn't know this two years ago, but a one millimeter gauge pin does not go into a one millimeter hole. And so when you... No, you always have like a gauge gap. That's right. You have a gauge gap. So when I put in my one millimeter gauge pin and it went in super nice, I was like, fantastic, I've got a one mil hole. But when you put in your nominal, like on size one millimeter bearing, suddenly it falls through. Seems really obvious right now to think about it that way. But when you start talking about, okay, I need a 0.997 hole, 0.996 pin fits really nice. There's no guarantee that the 0.997 that, that that hole is 0.997. You're just more or less using the gauge pin itself to determine a fit. You're not using the gauge mm-hmm. pin to determine a number, an actual value. It's comparative. I mean, most measurements are, but this is sort of uh, comparative by feel. Agreed. So the ne- <laughs> Yeah, agreed. <laughs> the next step for me was, well, okay, optical measurement is a really good solution, right? Because you can see the bore, you can, uh, on, on a manual profile projector, at least a high-end one, you can position the crosshairs and use uh, the DROs and the computer attached to the DROs in some cases to determine the hole size by uh, more or less mapping three points. You develop a triangle and that triangle gives you the, the, the hole diameter. Well, funnily enough, 
that is a flawed method most of the time. You have a lot of factors that come into play. The first being obviously the shadow that's projected onto the onto the screen. Is that shadow in focus and how much by? You know, it might seem in focus, but there is always some sort of fuzziness. And when we talk about microns, especially on these small holes, um, even a thin layer of oil can can really affect your measurements. So your parts have to be super, super clean. Not only that, burrs. So a chamfer tool, most of the time, unless it's really sharp, leaves a small burr on both the top and the inside diameter of the hole. It's, it's a very small burr, but it can. Super annoying. Very annoying. Because uh, you can... You can see for example on the profile projector a uh, 0.995 hole for, for instance but that hole might actually gauge to a higher uh, or a larger hole simply because you can push that maybe one or two micron chamfer straight through with a gauge pin and finally using a method of selecting three points to determine a hole um, doesn't necessarily tell you the actual size of the hole because it well it no let me rephrase that it tells you the size of the hole on those three points but if you rotate those three points in any which direction you might be gauging a different uh, hole simply because the hole might not be um, circular it might be trilobular or it might be elliptical well if it's trilobular you might have the same reading oh you stumped me there how does that It'd work? Trilobs are usually uh, constant widths. Constant widths, okay. Maybe I'm thinking if it's if it's more triangular, then your your three points that you select can can determine a larger radius or a smaller radius. I don't know. Let's let's um <laughs> let's do some drawings off the podcast and figure it out. Um, but needless to say. Uh, you're not measuring the circularity of the hole with three points. Uh, not always. So the next stage in my quest to measure these accurate holes was to move to a digital uh, gauging system, uh, but still optical. So uh, like a video measurement system or um, a photo inspection sort of system. And we purchased the Keyance, um I am 6,500 series uh, image measuring system. So that that system is great, and that's not the only thing we purchased it for. We purchased it for um, uh, the ease of use because you can store programs and just call a uh, measurement routine, and it measures within a couple of seconds, uh, you know, 80 features at once. So that was really useful for us, and we expected it to solve the issue with uh, measuring small diameter holes as well except for the fact that you run into the exact same issues even though you're gauging you know maybe uh, 40 points or 100 points or 200 points around that circle you run into the same issues of focus and dirtiness so even though you might get a, a more accurate reading because instead of moving scales and determine uh, and aligning a crosshair to three specific points and inducing operator error, you're just taking a photo and using software to define an edge. That chamfer still might exist. Oh, sorry, that burr on the chamfer still might exist. Mm-hmm. So then, finally, I sort of um, realized that 
there, there probably was one more avenue that I could explore and then I would nearly be dry, which was using my machining center as a CMM. And I do not recommend this for many machines, but if you have a machine that's specced to a high accuracy sort of um, workload, it's something you can consider. I wouldn't say it's the be all and end all of measurements, but it can help you a lot. So the real tricky part is, well, putting a one millimeter probe or a half millimeter probe on a, uh, oh sorry, half millimeter probe tip on a machine tool spindle probe. And the issues you sort of run into there, the stem on a half millimeter probe tip is like 0.3 millimeters and it's in carbide. Uh, it's very easy to snap. It's very easy to sort of bend and twist. And even though it's carbide, it still flexes. So the readings that you get, you have to be very careful about what what you assume is the reading. And uh, the best way to do it is finally to get a set of readings from all of the different methods that I've described. So the gauge pins, the optical measurement and the, the contact measurement through the CMM and find something in the middle that you can say, well, okay, I think to the best of my knowledge that this hole is about this size. And for me, my solution actually lied in, lied in the fact that I could press this nominal jewel bearing in to those holes, figure out by feel what the best um, press fit was and you go from, you know, you make a bunch of different holes in one micron increments, or at least you try. And, uh, but just by telling the machine to do it, not by measuring, you, then you measure them and then you press the bearing in and you find out your maximum and minimum material conditions just by the uh, array of measurements that you do, as well as the array of holes that you've programmed. Personally, I think this is good enough for me uh, because now I can say, oh, well, Mr. Kern, can you please make this size hole, 0.995 hole? I gauge it with a gauge pin, a 0.992 gauge pin. If I realize a 0.997 gauge pin fits, then that hole is far too large. But if the 992 fits in well, then it's probably within spec. And I've done that because I've did the sort of research and development. It's not really R&D, but I did that by... Uh, testing the fit at the final application and i think not everyone has the, uh, the the luxury to do that but i think that's where all of the precision must come from i i often have the luxury of knowing the final assembly like uh, m most of the dye work i do i'm I, I, you've seen i i do a lot of the components and i'm i'm putting them together as i'm making them but i still have to conform to the way my customer is going to check it. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I get nervous if they're CMM checking stuff and I'm using hard gauges like dowel pens mm -hmm. uh, because those could be different numbers. Uh, not by much, but enough to make people go, hmm. Um, and back to using the machine as a CMM, I've done that too with the Mori, but I kind of run into the problem on these where I didn't have enough, a small enough ball to get in there so i was basically left with gauge pens and when i'm doing something i don't feel comfortable with my measurement like i don't have a good feel on it i'll do another measurement 
and see if you know they match within 10% of the tolerance band if that's the case okay it puts me at ease but literally I was out of options all I could do was try to struggle through with these Deltronic pens yeah it's tough measurement and metrology is an art I think more than a science obviously it has scientific aspects to it but the way you approach problems has to be really creative and um it's mainly driven by the limitations that you have in a shop environment. Not everyone has access to the best and biggest QC lab and no one has, I don't think anyone in those production environments has access to infinite budgets where they can just spend infinite amounts of money but also time uh, inspecting their parts. Yeah, um, anytime I can add more quality equipment, I try to, but it is... You know, at the end of the day, it's not directly making me money the way machining centers mm-hmm, are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, would a CMM be sweet? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, uh, I could buy something for the same price that makes me a lot of money per hour where the CMM just kind of guarantees what I'm making is good. Where I feel as, for the time being, I have a pretty good read on that with hand tools and and uh, surface plate instruments. Absolutely. There's a lot to be said for hard gauges, especially in production. Um, once you've figured out what works, in a, and I'm talking about a production sort of environment, once you've figured out which pins are supposed to fit and which aren't, um, doing the no-go or go-no-go style uh, is really, really useful. Um, but for one-offs, and I feel for you, Adam, because I know a lot of your work isn't production. Uh, for one-offs, I feel like you're constantly in this sort of uh, loop where you're making and then measuring, making and then measuring. I know you talked about the mm-hmm. surface grinder, how it's, <laughs> what, 10% grinding, 90% measurement? Yeah. And, the, well, I mean, that's the other problem is, like, sneaking up on a bore size and say mm. you have a couple different bores on a plate that's a lot of time and just like grabbing dowel pens. No, that one doesn't fit. Let's try, let's go up one. And it gets kind of old really quick. Um, so that's why I started investing in tri mics ages ago. And I do like those when I can use them. But uh, again, like to do, I don't have all the tri mics I need. I think I have three. Uh, so to like get a comprehensive set to cover everything I would do would be ten fifteen thousand dollar investment and i'm not prepared to make that so and would you look at that the end of another episode of the precision microcast thank you so much for listening we really appreciate your support uh, especially on the instagram page give us a follow but also give us your feedback send a dm in with any topics that you'd like us to discuss and further than that, if you'd like to follow our day-to-day, follow us on Instagram, Adam the Machinist and Nicholas Hacko Watch. We post a lot of stories and a lot of precision content. So thank you for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.